Welcome to the breakdown. This is Yasser Louati speaking to you straight from the Paris Southside Bonlieu. Thanks again for joining us and I welcome our new viewers and listeners. This time is one of the most interesting episodes I'm going to host, this time with a pre-known uh, expert on multiple matters going from Islamophobia to Palestine to post-colonial studies to anti-colonial struggles. And he's one of those intellectuals who are at the crossroads of many topics which are burning issues for minorities both in North America and uh, uh, Europe. Uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian is a professor at the University of Berkeley uh, in California. He's also the head of the Islamophobia Studies uh, Journal. He, I wrote for him in the past and I have had the opportunity to meet with him multiple times on various platforms and I honestly have to give him credit for being among those few Americans, yes I said it, who are able to connect the dots between both sides of the Atlantic, but also to be active in North America and Europe. Uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Breakdown. Well, thank you, Yasser, for having me and it's a pleasure. Uh, usually I would be in Paris for the Islamophobia conference during this period. Uh, but uh, considering COVID, I wish and hope that everybody is well and I look forward to our conversation. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Bazian. It is true, I forgot to mention that you are the one who organizes the yearly Islamophobia conference in Paris. Now, I've been repeating myself hundreds of times that France is the laboratory of Islamophobia for the rest of the world. And we have Dr. Hatem Bazian, who is holding these yearly conferences in the belly of the beast and bringing together academics, activists, researchers, etc., to kind of uh, see where Islamophobia is at of that specific year and we had our conference about three weeks ago with uh, Berkeley where again activists from across the Atlantic and North America did come together especially after Emmanuel Macron's speech on so-called Islamic separatism but today's topic is uh, Palestine now we have been watching the news with here we go again in our in the back of our minds with the normalization uh, drive led by uh, the United Arab Emirates under the leadership of Mohammed bin Zayed, the so-called Abraham Accords, as to give a religious connotation to these accords. They are being sold to the international public opinion as peace agreements. They are not. The UAE never fought uh, Israel, let alone fight for Palestine. And after the normalizations of uh, or the officialization of relations between uh, Bahrain and Israel and the UAE, of course. For us, uh, North Africans in France, it has a special taste and it feels different when a northern country, a northern African country does it. I'm speaking about Morocco and the decision of Mohammed VI to make it official that they are holding relations. Now, of course, don't be fooled. We've, yeah, Israel has been helping Morocco for decades, especially in its repression of Western Sahara. My first question for Dr. Hatem Bazian is, uh, Doctor, how do you analyze these Abraham Accords, their roots and their future? I mean, like, are there something that will be there for the coming future? I guess you saw them coming, but today they ring different, especially with them having uh, Morocco joining the bandwagon. Uh, 
Well, I, I think why we're having these accords at this point uh, has to be analyzed in relations to the presence of uh, a U.S. administration with Trump, uh, who acts in a transactional way uh, that is very close to um, Netanyahu uh, of Israel, uh, uh, where some of the major supporters of Trump uh, are really some of the most extreme of the Zionist uh, infrastructure here in the United States. And then also the presence in the broader Arab and Muslim world of political leadership and figures that likewise are trying to secure their own seats of power at a post-Arab spring a period where there were an opportunity or at least a a breath of possible fresh air of political change. <clears throat> so what we have is also an Arab world counter-revolutionary period. All this coalesce in uh, this normalization pattern uh, that we are seeing. Uh, from the United Arab Emirates uh, point of view, uh, they are engaged in war in Yemen. Uh, they're engaged in uh, the intervention in Libya. Uh, they've been actively also attempting to influence events in Sudan. Uh, they have a role also playing a role in Syria. Uh, and furthermore, have been in close cooperation uh, with Israel and, and uh, in the broader so-called confrontation with Iran. Uh, so the United Arab Emirates is attempting to play a larger role in foreign policy, rather larger than its own state uh, size, as well as its own resources, uh, but in an attempt to secure the Gulf region uh, for the monarchies at a time where political change is being sought uh, where people want to be franchised, they want to have a say in their political affairs <clears throat> and how their society is being run. So what was in the background, meaning that relations between uh, Arab and Muslim states and Israel have existed uh, really from even prior <clears throat> to the emergence of Israel. Uh, if we look at the relations even as early as post-World War I, uh, Arab elites were in communication and engagement with the World Zionist Organization even at that stage. And what we have right now is these post-colonial states that they owe their existence to the uh, structure that emerged at the collapse of the Ottoman state as well as the post-World War II uh, for, for forming of the world system that we are part of. So that's what we are seeing in relations to, uh, and I really don't like to call it the Abraham uh, Accords or Abraham, because it's just gives, it's an insult to our prophet uh, Ibrahim, uh, focal point of justice, ethics, fairness, and so on. So they're trying to couch it in uh, religious terminology and connected to this notion that Israel represents in its Zionism as a settler colonial project, any notion of any religious ethos. Uh, and this is actually where 
uh, increasingly we're using that there is just like you have Zionism as a settler colonial, you have Christian Zionism, which supports this settler colonialism. There is an increasing emergence of Muslim Zionism, which are these Muslim political figures and elites, whether in United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, and other countries that are beginning to couch giving recognition to a settler colonial project in using religious terminology. And I think that has to be uh, exposed as well as uh, not allowed to stand uh, in the current period. Uh, we see that we saw that in the latest statistics from the Doha Institute that the overwhelming <clears throat> majority of the Arab population was against any normalization. I think the lowest score was something like 88%. Mm -hmm. And it reaches 99% for countries like Algeria. Uh, given the sacrality of the Palestinian struggle throughout the Arab world, which is something everybody agrees on at the yeah. popular level. And these governments, by their nature being anti-democratic, they are not elected officials. We know that the nature of these regimes would, despite them securing you know, access to further military uh, uh, equipment, training, mass surveillance mm -hmm. equipment, and to further strengthen their coercive apparatus. Wouldn't that actually open the gates for further weakening them at a time where we have seen new uprisings throughout the Arab world, the Iraqs in Algeria and Morocco, uh, Sudan mm -hmm. uh, lately, uh, Al-Sisi is still trying to crack down on his own population <clears throat> but we don't see any signs of his power being uh, strengthened. Do you see that as further weakening them or opening the gates for a further dictatorial drive in the likes of the Benai regime uh, back in the 80s and 90s? Well, uh, I think one has to, as a first step, is to give an understanding that the Arab political system is a post-colonial state system. And that has to be understood. A post-colonial state system are political elites uh, that have been trained by the colonial powers, educated in the worldview of the colonial powers, uh, given economic uh, position in cooperation with the colonial powers, colonial motherlands. And in this sense, we speak of uh, Great Britain and France for the most part. Then you have uh, Italy that had a role in parts of uh, in Libya. So these are post-colonial states. The key factor of it is that the post-colonial state, the colonial armies, left, but the colonial system is still there. The political order is colonial. The economy is colonial. The social, religious, educational pattern is colonial. And as such, you don't have a social contract. You don't have a relationship of citizen to a state. What you have is a subject to a despotic post-colonial elite that sees itself as the custodian of maintaining order in the plantation or maintaining order in the colony. And that's why you see that most of these states, the military is not really to defend the state from external enemy. The military is used to actually 
compel the population to maintain order and adherence to the governing elite that acts to maintain the benefits for the ex-colonial motherland. One aspect to also to think of this post-colonial state also embraced post-1980s and so on, neoliberal economic modality, which means as the Cold War came to an end and the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the notion of having what you call left and right uh, really had no meaning in much of the global South, but more so in the Arab world. So what you went into is into a hyper neoliberal economic modalities that pushed for privatization and literally selling the state's assets to a global uh, corporate interest. And most of these corporate interests, again, were from the ex-colonial motherland. So not only that you have a post-colonial state, but also the physical assets of the state in the post-colonial world were transferred in mass and the benefit went to a very small elite. So for example, you will get into let's say Hosni Mubarak and his family uh, being worth uh, at least in some of the data about $70 billion uh, or Ali Zain al-Abidin where it's you know, estimated it's in the 10, possibly 15 billion. <clears throat> These were acquired uh, as a result of the neoliberal economic model, privatization, selling state assets, and in return, uh, you got a cut uh, by these uh, mass corporate uh, entities, which were also in connected to government uh, uh, relations with France, UK, United States, and other countries. So there was a benefit in there for maintaining the post-colonial state total control of these societies. So as we look at the data from where the population in relations to Palestine versus where the political elites, for me is not surprising because I often say that the only free population, maybe with some exceptions in the Arab and Muslim world, the only free populations right now is the Palestinians because they're living occupation and they could witness it in their eyes, while the Arab populations are living a post-colonial structure that is occupying them, but using what you call native uh, political elites to maintain the structure. As such, Palestine is not only the fact that the Palestinians are occupied, but it represents the continuity of the colonial legacy in the contemporary period. And as such, the Arab world, whether it's 88% to 99%, and I would say you could see it across many parts of the Muslim world, 55 majority countries, as well as in the global South. So uh, if you actually see data maybe in uh, El Salvador, in Nicaragua, in Chile, uh, even in Argentina or Brazil, uh, and some other countries, you will see that actually Palestine is reflective of that consensus, large consensus uh, of populations uh, that continues to see uh, Palestine as the last settler colonial project to be commissioned in the 20th century represents their desire 
to both free themselves by also engaging in expression of solidarity with the Palestinians. Now, is the question uh, was that whether this uh, population support will weaken these regimes? Again, these regimes have not, they did not bet on their population. They bet on their relationship with the global north. They bet on their relationship with, the, with France. They bet on their relationship with Britain. They bet on their relationship with the United States. They bet on their relationship on the key factor of military equipment, military training, surveillance, and control. And as such, even that you might have 90% or 95% domestic support for Palestine, opposition to normalization with Zionism, those who have the guns determine the outcome or determine the policy. And that's the mindset that you have across many parts of the Arab and Muslim world. And as such, the large uh, opposition uh, is meeting a military machine supported by the global north and the economic infrastructure of new, neoliberal economics that is basically almost uh, uh, demolishing the standing of each citizen. If we could actually metaphorically say that there is an, a notion of Arab citizenship in practice, uh, especially in the Gulf state, there is no notion of citizenship. In parts of North Africa, the citizenship again is non-existent with some exception. And as such, this is the dilemma that you are facing as we are seeing this normalization that is being rushed and nurtured and incubated by the global North. Wouldn't that crystallize opposition within those countries? Uh, well, uh, you would hope for that the opposition will crystallize, but because of the overwhelming power of the modern post-colonial state uh, that has all tools at its disposal. And again, this is not to say that this is what I'm supporting, but this is just an analysis of what the state, uh, the modern post-colonial state in the Arab world uh, has a strong military with layers in there of security circles uh, focused at the domestic scene to make sure that the opposition either is killed, put in jail, or sent to exile. So in this sense, you have the military in there as a major tool. Then because of the consequences of neoliberal economics that sold and almost liquidated the assets of the states, meaning that the individual citizen is, and again, I'm using citizen metaphorically, the individual citizen is fighting to have a plate of food on their table. And that plate of food is coming from one source and one source only, which is relationship to the state apparatus that is despotic and saying to you that if you want to eat, you're only gonna eat from my hand that is dripping of blood from the society. Then third element is that you have an educational infrastructure that is built upon accepting, right? This despotic regime as the norm and it is to be celebrated and this whole notion of this 
uh, savior of the state and the savior of the state is this post-colonial uh, elite that is reflective in the educational infrastructure, in essence, accepting power domination and beating down as the only way. And it's often articulated in survival of the fittest, Darwinism and so on. And then you have also a religious institutions that amplify likewise and navigate and gives the cloak of legitimacy to these despotic regimes. So you could say that it will crystallize the opposition, but the opposition has no tools, resources and infrastructure at, at its disposal uh, because of uh, really all these factors that combine coming in a period where many of these societies have lost a generation or two resisting direct colonization to actually face the post-colonial uh, trauma, power, uh, domination that they are living through. So I am a person that looks at the situation in a realistic analysis to really uh, understand what is taking place because we often project on the Arab and Muslim world the hope, again, this is our own hope that they will rise up and transform. And they just did that in 2011, 2012 in the Arab Spring. And the result is what we are seeing right now, a, a unleashing the power of the centralized post-colonial state in partnership with the ex-colonial uh, powers, as well as the major powers to make sure that this region and this territory uh, will not come out into uh, full freedom, uh, participate in uh, equal footing in, in the world and continue to be the source of raw material. And I say raw material, both in terms of products, but the raw material of the human beings that have to migrate in terms of the brain drain to uplift the colonial uh, north, global north uh, and continue to be a source of what you call structured underdevelopment in uh, this region. If you look at how the, the so-called Abraham Accords have been rushed and the way they have been promoted both by the UAE and more, I would say, discreetly by Saudi Arabia, uh, we also saw how Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, tried to you know, a twist the Palestinian, Palestinian leadership's arms by telling them you have to do it and don't worry about it. We are, we got, we are, we, this is the moment to sign a historic accord. We still look at the unfolding events and ask ourselves, why has it been so easy to sideline the whole Palestinian leadership? I'm not talking about Mohammed Ahlan in, in the UAE who's working behind the scene. I'm talking about the officials like, you know, Mohammed Abbas and, and, and the likes. And this time these accords have been signed. And the shocking picture was seeing uh, the UAE, Israel, uh, the US being represented in Bahrain, but not the Palestinians. Why has it been so easy? Can we just say they buried them alive and said, move on, that's it, we're going to decide for you? Or something else is happening. I think there are a number of things that we need to be aware of. Uh, the Palestinian leadership in its current form uh, has lost uh, its uh, direction in relations to the Palestinian struggle 
And I would date back this to much earlier than just the past few months. Uh, the signing of the Oslo Accords by the uh, PLO was a major disaster for the Palestinians because the Oslo Accord themselves were not a peace treaty, nor it brought an end to an occupation. Uh, the Palestinian leadership in Oslo recognized Israel's right to exist and gave it legitimacy. In return, Israel only recognized the right of the PLO to negotiate on behalf of the Palestinians. So I always compare it that the Palestinians recognize Israel's right to eat the pizza, which is the Palestine, while Israel recognized the Palestinian right to be outside smelling the pizza uh, while it's being devoured. Simultaneously, the biggest chunk of the Oslo Accord put the Palestinian leadership to be responsible for protecting the settlers and the settlements and the Israeli right to colonize their land while not actually protecting the Palestinians themselves. This, this brought to fore that the Palestinian Authority really is a security agency. Uh, it's a security infrastructure to protect Israel settler colonialism at the expense of the population. Uh, maybe people would be uh, uh, maybe have a much better understanding of the dynamics. During the anti-apartheid struggle, you had Nelson Mandela, uh, who was representing the aspirations of the black South Africans. And then the South African white apartheid regime engaged Chief Putolezi in relations to try to have a, a structure of the homelands uh, where the blacks will be brought into these homelands under the control of the apartheid regime. I think any clear assessment of the Oslo Accord and what developed gives us that Israel was attempting and succeeding in creating a Botolazi regime in the Palestinian Authority and creating a security structure trained by Israel, funded by the United States, as well as managed with Jordan to make sure that the Palestinian resistance and demand for sovereignty or dignity for freedom will be snuffed out. And that's why you will see the Palestinian Authority heavy hand was directed at this. So from 1993 onward, Palestinian Authority became an adjunct tool of actually managing settler colonialism and protecting settler colonialism and fitted into the post-colonial Arab state system that was managed by a regional configuration where Israel is the hegemonic power supported by the United States. So I'm not surprised that Mohammed bin Salman is calling on uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, tell them to you know, either to put up or basically uh, go your separate way and you need to fulfill your uh, commitment because again, their position within the Palestinian body politic has become 
part of the utilization of the dynamics that the region has been going through. And I think uh, Mohammed bin Salman and MPZ likewise were trying to get their own interest uh, at a point in time where politics in the United States and politics in the region are going through a shift. And that's why the acceleration of the Abraham Accords. I do think that the shots have been called both by Israel and the United States uh, in relations to pushing this uh, rapidly uh, in the last few days or uh, last month of Trump's presidency. I think Israel wanted to have what you call has its cake and eat it too in the last few uh, days and to create facts on the ground uh, by such an agreement, in essence, to torpedo and neutralize uh, any possible uh, outcome post Trump's uh, presidency. So that's why you have what you call the rushing to actually secure these, uh, both Kushner, David Friedman, uh, Trump, and so on, are pushing uh, knowing that they have lost the election and now they're trying to put things in motion uh, that will at least prevent any type of change uh, that might take place in a Biden. And I'm not here praising Biden's uh, policies, but in essence, Israel have always created what's called facts on the ground. You always move the uh, post uh, in such a way that any negotiations that might take place does not begin in 48 or 1917 Belfort Declaration. It begins with last week. And as such, I think this rush uh, will make this uh, uh, the process. A second point to be to, to, uh, to actually say, why is Saudi Arabia rushing in its indirect communication relations with Israel and the meetings? It is very clear that uh, MBS is implicated uh, directly in the killing of Khashoggi in the uh, uh, Saudi embassy in uh, Turkey. And I do think that he is trying to negotiate uh, uh, some type of amnesty from the United States. This is the conversation that is taking place where uh, he would not be prosecuted uh, because there are lawsuits uh, standing against him in the United States as a result of this episode. I do believe uh, that the CIA has the recordings of his involvement in uh, calling the um, killing. I do think that the Turkish government had a recording of, uh, of him, of his responsibility in it. And I think in here is the quid pro quo tab of a, uh, an engagement where the price of uh, protection for MBS would be a facilitating uh, the moving forward with the recognition and normalization with Israel. Now it might, Saudi Arabia might be uh, uh, not engaged in full normalization, but for all intensive purposes, Israel and Saudi Arabia have normalized, have a de facto normalization underway. Uh, there is a permit, uh, travel over Saudi airspace is already taking place. There is military cooperation that is occurring. 
there is uh, security uh, meetings that are occurring. Uh, and I think in here, Bahrain would not have moved into normalization with Israel, as well as the push to Sudan to normalize. And in the past few days, there's a push for Indonesia uh, to normalize. And uh, also for those who are aware that Saudi Arabia was pressing Pakistan uh, to normalize and Pakistan in, the, in such a way was in a bind uh, financially that they ended up actually returning some of the financial contributions that were coming from the Gulf. And uh, the Gulf states, especially United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia are holding the Pakistani workers as hostages in the sense saying, if you don't normalize, uh, then we will limit the number of Pakistani workers uh, that are coming to work in the Gulf, which uh, Pakistan depends considerably on the remittances that are coming from these workers. So that explains the Saudi Arabia's uh, dimension where a personal uh, uh, what you call responsibility, interest. Yeah. personal interest and responsibility for the murder of a Saudi citizen in the Saudi consulate uh, is used as a way to clean up and to normalize relations with Israel at, uh, at this expense. So in essence, uh, in here, MBS is pursuing his narrow self-interest uh, in this sense. And in here also to think about the situation in Yemen, where likewise there's rising voices of uh, actually taking responsibility and accountability of Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates for uh, the disaster that continues to unfold in Yemen. So these are the dynamics that are rushing this uh, accord uh, with, the, with the idea that in order to have influence in Washington, you normalize with Tel Aviv. So in this sense, you secure your political position by utilizing the understanding that Israel has a considerable sway on the political dynamics in the United States. And as such, you actually hedge your bets on that APAC and the uh, Israel uh, lobby in the United States would be able to secure you uh, in a Biden administration uh, that is coming up. Uh, what's your answer to those who kind of you no know, comment you know here and there especially in in Europe uh, that these this normalization is might actually be some good news because at least it would clarify who's been really supporting the, the Palestinian struggle for liberation and those who are being undermining it while pretending to support it and that this would be actually the fence between the pros and cons instead of having this kind of, you know, in French, we say secret de polichinelle, this um, secret everybody knows about, but nobody wants to really open, publicly speak about. What's your answer to that? Uh, I, I, you know, uh, being a person that looks at reality, I have a mixed emotions on that or a mixed reflection. On the one hand, uh, for anyone who has been following the Palestine cause from the really the early 1900s till now, understand that the politics of elites have always uh, sold out not only Palestine, but their own populations. And in a sense, the records of collaboration uh, and facilitation of settler colonialism uh, in the long history of the Arab and Muslim world is very well present. Definitely now, everything being out in the open makes 
for researchers a little bit easy to try to actually draw and connect the lines. But as far as the specifics of what Palestine will face in the days and months ahead, is that now what we, are, what we will be experiencing is that even in the public arenas where a modicum of support for Palestine has shifted to being a position against Palestine. And we see this specifically in relations to the discussions in the, in the UNRWA uh, discussions and funding. Uh, recently, the United Arab Emirates have uh, uh, decided to reduce its financial commitment to UNRWA. Now, this has to be seen in the broader discourse of the question of Palestinian refugees. Uh, from the Oslo Agreement period and ongoing, there's been a Israeli policy or an Israeli strategy to shift the discussion on the Palestinian refugees away from their right of return and away from the fundamental part that these were expelled and ethnically cleansed and to shift away from their descendants having those rights. Uh, in post-Oslo, there was a creation of what's called a multilateral track to discuss how to resolve the issue of the Palestinian refugees. And some of the states that were participating participated on the notion that they will actually take Palestinian refugees and settle them in their own countries to alleviate pressure on Israel. This included European countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and some Arab countries to provide funding. When the Trump administration came into office, they actually took the Israeli position and made it the effective policy of the United States. The Israeli position says that the only refugees that have the right of return are the only the refugees that left in 1948 themselves, not their descendants, which would reduce the number of uh, refugees from the six and a half million to seven million to basically only a few thousand. That became the policy, and this brought about the United States withholding funding from UNRWA. And during that period, some other countries provided the resources to continue to the support of the Palestinians. So now what we're seeing is that Arab countries, United Arab Emirates, and others are actually adopting the Israeli position Right By withholding funding, you're actually weakening the infrastructure and thus putting the Palestinians uh, in a very precarious position. So yes, uh, it is easy to see everything in the open, but as politics and its movement in a very, what you call deliberate uh, steps, I think the Palestinians have been weakened politically as a result of these moves. Now, does that make me lose hope? By no means, but just it has made the Palestinian struggle within this world system much more difficult because it's removed some key players 
even in the public discourse, at least you could depend on some public pronouncement, it removed them from those from that arena. And now we have to depend on reconfiguring Palestinian political positions and mobilizations where some of these states that were uh, uh, counted as even as a public position of support are no longer there. More importantly, uh, in relations to uh, the position relative to Jerusalem, where you had an Arab uh, League uh, committee, which is the Jerusalem committee, that was led by Morocco, uh, to actually uh, make sure that the rights of uh, Palestinians, the rights of Muslims in Jerusalem are guaranteed. Now you have the problem of that the state that was what chairing the seat of the committee for the protection and uh, uh, advancing the cause of the Palestinian Jerusalem is also have shifted, which is also a major crisis in the political order of things. So for Palestinians, we need to reconfigure, rethink both our internal political dynamics and then also how to go out to the broader Arab and Muslim world one, and but also to the world community of what are the strategies forward, uh, taking account of these changing dynamics in the region uh, just in the past two months, if not more. I do think that we might experience a, a couple of other countries. I do think that uh, there is a, a heavy push for Indonesia to normalize. Uh, and for a while, Indonesia already had a trade, uh, an office of trade interest uh, with Israel. So they've been engaging in trade. And I think there is a push to try to create a normalization uh, with Indonesia. And then we'll see if Sudan will actually come forth uh, as the two countries that the push for is, uh, uh, is underway. Uh, following uh, the normalization of Morocco, actually I saw uh, similar reactions, especially on social media and from uh, the official intellectuals or public figures coming from those countries. They were quick to uh, adopt the narrative that this is time to normalize, uh, this is the way history is evolving, that we are actually doing this for the Palestinians and, you know, maybe preparing a better deal. And we also saw how quickly, for example, you know, I'm quoting this Moroccan journalist that I highly admire for his courage, who's living in exile, Ali Lemrabet, based in Spain. And he shared a video of a very famous news anchor in Morocco, and she was singing the Israeli anthem. And people felt like this was some kind of humiliation. I mean, like, you didn't have to go that far to show that you are aligning your position with that of the king uh, of Morocco. Yeah. Now, uh, having said that, uh, let's first speak about Morocco. And I want to really bring, since you know France very well, to speak of the Palestinian support in France, especially. I'm not gonna, I won't go beyond that. But aside from what, the, what we know already, this Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, which is actually a unilateral recognition, uh, the $3 billion from a Zionist you know, entrepreneur in the US who would actually go to the pockets of Mohammed VI because it will be an investment in the uh, uh, companies he holds. How do you explain such a risky move by the king of Morocco, uh, especially now, because, you know, it's the decision, being, as you said in the beginning of this podcast, that it's 
you know, an outgoing president, you know, maybe Biden will come and just like repeal the accord, especially with James Baker having spoken against it. And even some people we, we barely respect like uh, uh, Bolton. How do you explain such a move by the King of Morocco? Well, uh, I, if you assess the Moroccan uh, normalization with Israel, it's been ongoing for quite a long time, uh, as early as the 1960s. Uh, normalization, uh, a de facto normalization was in place. Uh, remind people that post-1964, uh, the Moroccan uh, king, King uh, Hassan, uh, actually allowed for the setting up of a Mossad station in Morocco uh, and also permitted and facilitated the migration of uh, almost a million Jews from Morocco to Palestine, which in essence, in terms of population, would be either the second or third largest cluster of uh, population within Israel, which means that permitting the migration of Moroccan citizens to participate in a settler colonial project of Zionism in Palestine. And that was a quid pro quo because uh, King of Morocco wanted the assistance of the Israeli Mossad in targeting his opposition uh, domestically. Now, there were other normalization, what you call uh, road maps that Morocco have in, uh, engaged in, including inviting and having meetings with uh, Perez and Rabin, uh, uh, having the Moroccan and Israeli tourist relationship being what you call cemented through a variety of different initiatives. So I think the Moroccan king, in his assessment, and knowing that uh, all the levers of power in, in Morocco are under his dominion and under his control, that he felt that this step can be taken without any drastic consequences uh, domestically for him. And in return, uh, he felt that he will create facts on the ground relative to a conflict uh, in relations to Western Sahara. Uh, and in a sense, utilizing uh, the US president's recognition and using that in any steps thereafter vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, this agreement. So normalization in here is a transactional uh, step for Morocco uh, to secure for its own perspective relative to uh, uh, King Mohammed a position of uh, prominence and uh, permanency on a conflict that he sees has been protracted. And as such, he feels that he would bring in the Israel lobby on his side moving forward and might also influence uh, the situation with France vis-a-vis -vis its relation. Now, we need to know that even the conflict in the region is a direct outcome of the colonial legacy. So the, the drawing of the borders, the separations that are taking place, uh, we have to give recognition that the states we live in are states that emerge out of colonial topography and colonial, colonial map making. And as such, I would say it makes Israel and the United States and France, 
a much more active players in the political order in the region. So rather than reducing colonial, post-colonial intervention, it actually accelerates and intensifies. And I do foresee the possibility of actually a great, a, a new cycle of conflict between Algeria and Morocco uh, that will be actually fomented that weaken both states uh, in the future and will be more heavily dependent on Israel, France, and the United States to purchase weapons and so on. So divide and rule uh, has many paths to it. And I think this would be one of the paths uh, uh, that we might see uh, coming forth. Well, actually, you mentioned, you know, the uh, <coughs> historic connections between uh, Israel and the Moroccan regime. A few examples are make it quite obvious. For example, in 1965, uh, the uh, the Arab League summit during which uh, mm -hmm. Hassan II recorded the session and handed it over to the Mossad. And in return, the Mossad helped uh, Hassan II in the abduction and further uh, killing of his first opponent, the uh, Pan-Africanist uh, Mehdi Ben Barka. And mm -hmm. also we are going to speak about it, uh, the Western Sahara, the Sahara Wall, which actually is the longest wall built in the contemporary uh, period on earth, which means, you know, aside from the, the Great Wall of China, the biggest man-made wall on earth is in the Western Sahara that is has been built by Morocco to uh, separate uh, two sections of the Western Sahara, and which actually brings us uh, to the similarities, if there are any, and I will ask you on that, Doctor, to what extent, since now Muhammad, um, Muhammad VI has gotten himself a good deal, my, many would say that, all right, it has been a multiple decade long struggle or you know war between uh, Sahrawi uh, people in, uh, in Western Sahara against the Moroccan regime after the 1970s, when Spain withdrew, the Sahrawi said, we, we don't want any Moroccan uh, sovereignty. We want to be on our own and at least the right to, uh, to have a referendum. Morocco refused. They bombed them in 1976. They even used uh, white phosphorus, uh, phosphorus and napalm with French airplanes, talking about collaboration with France. And today, as the Western Sahara uh, struggle has been forgotten in the Arab world, uh, do you think this would actually put these cases on the table for, uh, for, for the Global South public opinion and show that there, you know, Palestine might be close to heart to many people around the world, but it also is a reflection of what's going on in Africa with Western Sahara. To begin with, can we compare both situations as Morocco being a colonial power in Western Sahara, the same way Israel is in Palestine? I don't think that the comparisons will be uh, accurate to make in that sense. This is not to say that the struggles of people for their uh, fairness, justice, and so on. Uh, what you have in relations to Palestine and uh, in Western Sahara, I think the more accurate way to look at it is the map making of colonial legacy and also in the post-colonial tensions between regional states is that you have Western Sahara really encapsulated in there. So it's not, uh, I would say it would not be an accurate way to compare, let's say Western Sahara with Palestine in a, as a way of comparisons. I think each one has a unique and what is unique in relations to Palestine is that 
this replaced complete replacement of the indigenous population in Palestine of expulsion of genocide of ethnic cleansing and bringing in uh, the Zionist movement predominantly from Western Europe initially and then later on uh, from Eastern Europe first and then Western Europe and then followed by other populations from the uh, east so that's a completely different and I know that sometimes the comparisons can be useful to look at the dynamics. I do tend to say that the uh, North and Sub-Saharan, North and Western African uh, dynamics, as well as you could say some part of the uh, Sub-Saharan dynamics are a direct outcome of specific European manipulation of post-colonial states in order to maintain the intervention and the tension in there between states that are really uh, emerge out of, of a colonial legacy themselves. And therefore you continue to maintain their relationship with the elite. You maintain their cooperation security wise, you maintain their purchases of weapons. And every so often you energize and you have a regional conflict, thus eliminating the possibility of development uh, from taking place. So that's, I would say, uh, the dynamics in there. The more important also aspect is that the regional uh, ethnic makeup of the region are in essence of comparable heritage and background. Uh, now there might have what you call tribal differences and regional differences is there, but I don't think that you could say that the uh, populations, let's say of Southern Morocco and, West, and uh, Eastern Morocco is that much different than the Sahrawi population. They might be different in terms of trajectory of urbanizations and so on. So that makes a different unique uh, circumstances that are specific to the four regions in Western Sahara. So there is an ethnic, what you call makeup that are there. Now, if there is a way for uh, the uh, uh, having a pulposite or having a uh, a vote for the population of which directions, that's a, a vote within a, an ethnic population that is similar in background rather than a complete distinction uh, that you would find in Palestine. So those are points of distinctions that are very important and critical uh, while we're actually critiquing the attempt to try to secure a foothold of resolving a conflict that I don't think that recognition will resolve it. I do believe that this will only uh, set up a new round of war uh, in the region. I do think that it will actually intensify the conflict and they will actually bring in Israel as a major player in there, not for trying to resolve the regional conflict, but rather to actually uh, Israel have always pursued what's called a periphery strategy in order to maintain support away from Palestine, you engage in periphery uh, conflicts, contestation, and even diplomatic recognition to remove this layer of support that's taking place. And I do think that uh, for those who are observing what's taking place, I would try to focus on how to prevent a conflict from uh, another cycle of war from emerging between uh, in the region uh, between Mor uh, Morocco, Muslim Sahara and Algeria in particular, and then uh, also whether other countries will be brought in, meaning Mauritania, 
and others. So I think that would be, uh, I would say, where I would put much of the focus. I mean, it's, it's true that, you know, you know, tensions between Morocco and Algeria have been going on for decades. The, the border is shut, etc. Now, would you agree, for example, with the Harris journalist Noah Londo, who wrote a piece you know, recently and said, uh, Israel-Morocco deal is occupation in exchange for occupation? Would you agree on that? I, I, again, I, I don't. I don't like the framing. It's, it's just a question. Like, and of course, you can. Yeah. I, I think it's a quid pro quo where Israel would become a facilitator in relations to Morocco, vis-à-vis uh, -vis its policies in uh, the four regions of the Western Sahara. And in this sense, Israel is now is going to project a new terminology. Part of colonial discourse is that you introduce all these terminologies. And in essence, Israel will actually begin to say to Morocco, you're occupying this region and we're occupying, so you have no business in critiquing us. And I think uh, flattening the point of, of uh, discussion is not a way to analyze the dynamics that are taking place. I think Israel wants to have a role in uh, West, uh, West, uh, Northwest Africa. And I think this gave them the door uh, using both Morocco and I would say also Mauritania, because they have full diplomatic relations with Mauritania. So Israel becomes the determining factor uh, in the regional uh, conditions in there. And they will forward these types of uh, dynamics of trying to reframe the discussions and reframe uh, how we define uh, conflicts that are there. The conflict in uh, Western Sahara is a direct outcome of the colonial legacy of France and Spain. And I think uh, the societies in, the, in there, if, I, if you would ask me what I would recommend, I would recommend for a regional uh, conference to occur between all the participants with a multi-layer strategy of how to address the needs and the concerns emerging from a 20th century policy that actually was divide and rule was the basis of this strategy. And Israel is not an ally in this. Actually, Israel will prevent this from actually taking place because it does not serve its interest. I mean, you know, on the ground, it is still Morocco that's occupying, you know, Western Sahara that has built a wall that has set up the biggest landmine field on earth, a hundred million landmines, you know, talking about post-colonial between two Arab, you know, regions. You know, Muslims, etc., and the fact that there is also a movement. No, but the thing is that uh, I think it's very important for us not to uh, what you call uh, straighten the lines in terms of analysis of colonization, right? In the same way that right now the Indian uh, Hindu nationalists speak of the Muslims in terms of colonization that were colonized by the Muslims. I think we have to make a very no, distinct. No, the the uh, the the situation is. I that think. The situation is, is definitely uh, uh, critical. There's definitely political engagements by the various participants. Uh, there's wars that have been fought in the 1970s and so on. So I'm not discounting that there is a considerable uh, structure of oppression and structures of dominations that are occurring. What my critique is in the following that not every situation oh, yes. you cannot is to be Overlay both of them and say these are Overlay, these are colonial and so on. No. What we have is an outcome of a colonial legacy that created a, a tension and conflict uh, regionally that have not been resolved. Do both for domestic post-colonial uh, power 
elites, as well as interest from northern colonial motherlands and uh, modern uh, what you call powers that overlaid over it a Cold War dynamics likewise that fitted in there. That's a dynamics that I would say completely different in this sense. And I think, it, I think in here Israel and Zionism is attempting what you call, in Arabic we say, they're trying to go fishing in a polluted water. Uh, that we have a very difficult uh, circumstance and we need to actually address it. But the, its addressing is not on the basis of flattening and superimposing the type of analysis that we are doing. That, and, and that's definitely true, especially when you know that France has been supporting uh, the what, what, what Sahrawi, Sahrawis call, excuse me, uh, the, the occupation of their land and this movement of population to affect demographics. It sells weapons. You know, oh. France is interested in selling weapons. It's continued to control economy, raw material. It continues to need employees yeah, to clean the streets. And, uh, and, and fishing, especially and, fishing. And fishing. So we need to understand the, the political, the post-colonial political game that is being played and understand what how these factors play into this current push toward normalization of Israel. And Israel becomes the subcontractors for surveillance, subcontractors for selling of weapons, subcontractors for lobbying for, for the positions of the various participants. And I would say that Israel will be playing on all sides simultaneously to be what you call the determining factor. In the same way that right now in the tension between United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, Israel is actually and uh, Zionist delegations from the United States are going in there to be the problem solvers and then mediators between these states. Uh, now talking about what you call, uh, this is like Comedy Central, uh, a, a joke on both the participants as well as the joke that all these are coming uh, to try to resolve and mediate in, in these conflicts. Their only interest is to extend uh, the security of Israel and making Israel the go-to determining uh, regional power uh, that it has its hands in the conflicts as well as it has its hands to reduce and increase the tensions in a regional way. Uh, on the French side of this podcast called the Tidalib, I received you know, people who spoke on <coughs> Actually, I spoke to a Sahrawi activist based in Paris, and he, he went quite extensively on the historicity of this problem. And uh, something that came about while preparing for the show and the various interviews I had before recording the podcast, one of them, uh, Sahrawis, uh, said, we have always been staunch supporters of the Palestinian struggle, but we, don't, we haven't always felt that this support was uh, um, uh, um, both mutual. ways, um, was mutual, thank you, my English. <laughs> My English is betraying me. Uh, was was not mutual. Now, of course, you know it. It would be a, a, you know, a, you know, a despicable idea to put these two cases, you know, as you know, rival cases. And this is not the goal. The goal here is: is this some kind of uh, opportunity for the Sahrawis to kind uh, to kind of speak to to Palestinians? Because the example was given to me was, for example, I spoke like you know last night we finished recording. And the Sahrawi activist was, yeah, George Habash came to the uh, Sahrawi uh, um, refugee camps, but uh, both uh, Fatah and Hamas always refused to even acknowledge there is yeah. a Western Sahrawi, uh, Sahrawi problem. 
to what extent do you think this can be open a gate for dialogue between both lands? Well, uh, both one has, uh, again, one has to look at the Palestinian uh, struggle in its specificity. Uh, uh, Palestinians are not one homogeneous uh, uh, political, what you call, uh, group. Uh, at the core of it, you have a multi-layered political uh, landscape in uh, relations to Palestine, from the far left to the far right, if you want to use the political demarcation, from also uh, nationalists to also religious-oriented organizations. So that's one just to recognize that. Second is also Palestine as a non-state actor giving a state standing in the Arab League uh, also has the uh, constraints as well as the responsibility to work within the Arab state system. And as such, the uh, case or the conflict in uh, Western Sahara is something that is on the platform or on the table of the Arab League, even though that we could critique the Arab League and its complete uh, lack of power, this also situate the Palestinians within a state system, even though that they're non-state actors, that the Arab world have given them the state recognition. And then the third, they also work within the Muslim uh, framework and world system likewise. And then lastly, also within the organization of African unity. So all these are, Palestinians have to navigate all these layers uh, in relations to how they associate with that Palestine has been at the core of their recognition uh, and dynamics. So it is very difficult for at least to demand or at least require for the Palestinians that, that mutuality considering the constraints that they're under at the core of it, for example, there's Palestinian refugees in these different states. So how do you accord, especially that often we have lived the experience where every time two Arab countries have a conflict, they actually put the Palestinians on the border. Kuwait and Iraq, for example, yes. Yeah. Libya and Egypt, Libya and Algeria. So again, the, often the, the requirement or at least the mutuality that is being asked without actually recognizing the nuances that in there. The other question is that like everybody sought the uh, relationship with Israel, whether directly or indirectly. So on the one hand, uh, mutual recognition or mutual support uh, has to be balanced and against is that you individuals as well as states were simultaneously double crossing the Palestinians time and time again. So that's why I would say that uh, often if the recognition relative to what is taking place has to look at the specificity of the long history and the dynamics of the Palestine, both the political movements in there and the situation that finds itself uh, throughout the periods. And now I think uh, the call or the requirements of mutual uh, support and mutual recognition is coming as a moment of a crisis, but also the long history has to be also considered of what were the dynamics prior to the current period. Uh, it is true that uh, one shouldn't succumb to demagogy and expect the, uh, you know, how realistic would that be to 
go against the whole Arab League and you know and say and demand that you know we are going to we are <laughs> waiting for you to support our struggle and then uh, we are going to call out <clears throat> what you're doing and that's true that power dynamics and politics come into play and hopefully we will have a common platform between you know whether it's you if you accept and another Sahrawi <laughs> to kind of see you know both pictures at the same time and have this exchange I have a question and this is actually I think you would be among the best in the U.S. to answer it, uh, given again your knowledge of French dynamics and civil society. Now, you know the, the, the sacrality of the Palestinian struggle, and I belong to a generation who was raised on the first Intifada. Uh, Palestine has always been a dividing line in the grassroots in France, and I'm talking about uh, the post-colonial immigration. I'm not talking about any other, you know, uh, civil, you know, organizations. Uh, from the movement of Arab uh, you know, workers, Mouvement des Travailleurs Arabes, the MTA, to Islamic organizations like the, the UOIF, which is the French, the Union of French Islamic Organizations, and even some people from the Grand Mosque of Paris and the French Council of the Muslim Faith, and even anti-Islamophobia organizations like the CCIF, to them, connecting local struggles or bringing the, the Palestinian questions would be adding more challenges and it would be more strategic to kind of silence it and to put it aside in order to better focus. Now, I can quote uh, an, uh, you know, a discussion I had once and it was about, uh, you know, you know, going after Zionists in France is a bad idea because uh, you would be, you know, dispersing your strength. And my answer was like, yeah, but the Zionists are the, are the, are the vanguard of Islamophobia in France. They are both promoting it and heavily funding it. So you mm -hmm. can't call out Islamophobes from the secular left and remain quiet on with these individuals. How, how, how smart do you think it was to make such a decision? And can you answer the question so people kind of, okay, have an answer, both looking back at the history, whether it worked or not, and looking into the future, how the Palestinian, how central the Palestinian struggle should be in terms of fighting, as you said, you know, uh, post-colonialism, uh, militarism, racism, Islamophobia, and how Israel is constantly, you know, the, 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 the supplier of, you know, tools to dominate, you know, civilians across the world, but whether supporting the far right, you know, across Europe, or even supporting the fascist government of Modi, or the, uh, um, the military junta in Burma, who are uh, doing what they're doing against the Rohingya. Yeah. Uh, one has to uh, at least come into recognition that uh, the targeting of Muslims in the West uh, by the Zionist movement is undertaken as a strategic tool or a strategic step to silence and marginalize the Muslims in the West themselves. Which means that it's not only Palestine at the crux, but it's one of those issues that among many. Uh, Daniel Pipes was his, one of the you know, major Islamophobic figures uh, he said, and I'm quoting in, not in passing, is that he worried about the increasing numbers, the stature, enfranchisement, and affluence of Muslims. He was speaking in America, but that also was used in relations uh, or could be reflected in Europe when the discussions about no-fly zone or no-go zones and so on. 
the discussion has to be fought in the following, that Israel is both a Zionist and Western European project simultaneously. So you're not, if you separate those two, you don't understand the history of both coloniality, colonial structure, and also what were the motivation behind setting up uh, the state of Israel uh, by Western European powers, Great Britain at the time, then inherited and taken over by uh, the United States support. Muslims in the West, their numbers are increasing. Their effect is not only domestically could be felt in those countries, but also it might actually impact policies of those countries to their colonial, post-colonial motherlands, as well as the framing of Western powers in the Arab and Muslim world and in the region. So Israel is not an, an independent actor, it's a co-actor in the projection of world order in the region, and as such has to be understood. So targeting Muslims in France by trying to say that don't critique Israel is a faulty strategy because it implies that you actually can make your inroad in the French society on an equal footing, right? But on the condition that you actually truncate or silence your voice. In this sense, you actually no longer franchise because at the core of franchisement is the ability to reflect your political views and also arrange society in the way that actually reflects your moral, ethical worldview as a co-participant in the creation of the society. So the Muslims in France, as well as other parts, are the internal colonial, meaning just as you were in Algeria, in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Senegal, in Mali, you were a colonial subject of France. As you moved into the motherland, now you're the colonial subject of France internally. So you're really not an equal citizen. That's why the whole notion you can't be French, right? You have to be French to the source. What does that mean? You have to have a blood test. What does the blood test have to show? that you have a, you know, your DNA has to show more preponderance of croissant than possibly uh, couscous. Is that the type of DNA marker that you have? So this is again, that Muslims are a colonial subject internal and they have to be silenced in the same way that Muslims were in the, co in the colonies were silenced. You could not actually articulate who you are you could not reflect your own tradition, your own values, your own ethics, your own moralities and so on. The same is being required. And I do think that Muslims would be in error if they think that if they are silent, if they are nice, if they are courteous, if they stay by the wall, if they hide in the shadows and they're just got go and pray, and leave and then that everything will be fine. I think they are completely mistaken and in error. I mean, doctor, what I'm, it's actually even more than that, it goes even beyond that. It's strategic decisions taken by leading figures in France. Say like, no, 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 uh, we focus on Islamophobia and 
because if you bring in Palestine, it's going to get more messy. You're going to have more enemies. And just for what you said in regards to Daniel Pipes, uh, this actually word for word is what Pierre Lelouch uh, said, a strong no. supporter, a former member of parliament from the, the traditional conservative party uh, born in Tunis. And he said after the fall of Gaddafi and when you know, Sarkozy you know, followed Bernard-Henri Lévy to, uh, to bring down Gaddafi, he said, Pierre Lelouch said, quote unquote, uh, the, we will have to worry about these Muslims becoming citizens and mm -hmm. with the potential on, on, if, of influencing France's foreign policy. That's exactly what you said in regards to, in regards to uh, Daniel Pipes. Now, the situation tends to be more, how can I say, a source of worries when people at the top of you know, NGOs and public figures buy into the narrative that, okay, it's you know, put aside Palestine so you can better focus on Islamophobia. It's even more than the, you know, the regular Muslim saying, I'm gonna pray and go home. You know? Yeah, well, again, uh, one has to be always cognizant that uh, when you are fitting into the society, whether it's in France, UK, the United States, Belgium, uh, Sweden, and so on, you are being asked to be a colonial subject living in the colonial motherland, which means whatever priority the state, the post-colonial state has, you need to reflect that priority in order to be accepted as a good citizen with the citizen between two parentheses, right? And part of this is that for Western world, Israel as a project that they incubated is a good project that needs to be celebrated. And you need to silence yourself in order for you to actually fit in into the society. So that becomes an internalized, which in itself is an Islamophobic construct because at the core of Islamophobia is that you are pushed away to the margins and you're not allowed to be who you are in the society. So in essence, if you go to some parts of France, you have people that can say the most craziest thing and they're seen as celebrated, right? You could actually say that the world is flat and you're celebrated. But if you say anything about Israel and Zionism, now uh, the camera's on you, now your teacher is investigated, your mosque is investigated, your, uh, all those relations, because again, you are confronting a state power in alliance with a settler colonial project that they're incubated. So I always say that Israel or the dispossession of Palestine is a Zionist, Western European, Eurocentric project that have been adopted and also theologically supported by a particular, what you call speculative Christian theology. That's when a Muslim in uh, Europe and the United States, that's what we're confronting. And as such, the push for you to be silenced because it's, it's you're facing the full thrust of the society and its, it's epistemology as it's been constructed toward you. So Muslim leaders or those who wanna fit in, the easiest way is just throw Palestine of the, uh, of the boat and now you are fitting in, but that's a mistaken understanding. It's not work. I mean, like, you know, I don't- I know, but, but that's just a mistaken analysis. It's mistaken analysis of what are the basis of what you call of belonging. Because belonging is not a matter of erasure. Belonging is a matter of affirmation, affirming who you are and what you stand for. And as such, 
this is what I would say the mistake of those individuals. And more, furthermore, they begin to actually partake in the structure of surveillance for their own self. In essence, you become watcher of your own society. So whether it's like the prevent program or hyper surveillance, and now you need to go and train your imam to edit their own self in order for you to get into a French Islam. What does the French Islam? Is an Islam that basically is saying, uh, you know, if you, we hit you, you say, yes, boss, I feel good. You know, you run, how fast, jump, how high. And therefore you no longer are a co-participant in critique and affirmation of the society. And I think this is the, uh, what you call the notion of integration that is being placed at the Muslim, which is to integrate as a colonial subject in the colonial motherland. You were brought in here to clean the streets, to cook and clean in the kitchen, to uh, make what you call the displays nice, but you are not to speak. You're not to critique. You're not, that's what you are in it because you are really not French. And I mean, it's true that it, what you're saying actually, you know, echoes what Macron was saying in his uh, speech in Les Mureaux. And basically what he was saying was exactly that, that uh, a French Islam is basically an Islam where Muslims do not exist socially and politically. Yeah, they are avid consumers. And for the smartest of them, they are, you know, keepers of, you know, they are just gatekeepers. And, you know, for the next months, you know, this so-called law against separatism will continuously try to lower the bar for Muslims. And unfortunately, we have seen, and I can speak, you know, as a French citizen, uh, whether they like it or not, that, you know, we have seen actually, you know, uh, uh, French Muslim leaders and clerics buying into that. And when an organization like CCIF was dissolved, they actually said uh, amen to that. Uh, my last question, Dr. Bazian, is if you are a non-avid reader of you know, issues dealing with Palestine, colonialism, and the way things are evolving in, around the world, some people might tend to lose hope and say, well, you know, here we are, you know, we have a new wave of normalization between Arab states and Israel, we have been supporting Palestine with our money, with our time, etc. Uh, the repression against BDS has been aggressive, even though in France we can share some good news. The European Court of Human Rights, you know, is now you know has criticized France for its prosecution of BDS activists, because as you know, France since 2014, a minister, a ministerial circular prohibits the boycott of, uh, Israeli. Of, of Israeli goods. What message do you send, not only to French you know, listeners and viewers, but in, in, in the English language, when people tend to kind of, all right, well, I think you know, things are going to get worse, and there isn't much we can do about it? Well, I remind people that uh, if you looked at the world in, 2000, in 1914, 85% of the world's surface was a colony either for the French, the British, the Belgian, the Italians, the Germans, and so on. And now we're in 2021, and uh, the world has moved on in a very, very drastic and uh, clear ways. The fact that we're still struggling is a positive, it's not a negative. Uh, I do think that the reason that we're seeing an intensification of attack on the PDS movement is because of its success, not because it's it's failure. If uh, you were a, if you are a 
if your uh, movement was a failure, you would not see legislations taken. You would not see the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs spending 30 to $35 million to try to target these, the PDS movement. You would not see the Palestine flag being prominent on almost every type of political mobilization across the global north, the global south, east, and west. So in this sense, I am not a person that is, while I critique and analyze what is taking place, I don't think that we should at any moment lose hope. I do think that the future is actually much brighter and is far more uh, promising than we think uh, otherwise. I do think that the mobilization that you're seeing in France, even though that it's being what you call contested by the state, the fact that a Macron has to stand up and close an organization or two is not a sign of strength of the French state. It's a sign of its weakness. And I think what we need is to understand that. What we need is to actually possibly double and triple our political effort and organizing and uh, be far more assertive rather than other, the other way around. So I think in this sense, I am more hopeful in this sense. Uh, and you could see it in the UK, you could see it in Belgium, you could see it in the Netherlands, uh, even at a time where if you arrayed the political forces that we are facing, we'll just say it's, it's, it's just incredible. But again, for me, the larger the, what you call the target, the more systematic and the easier the work that uh, for us to undertake. So I would actually call for people to continue to uh, actually organize. Uh, to continue to speak, uh, again, it's at the core of our ability to advocate for our position. And I do say that the majority of the world population, including in Europe and the United States, the majority of the world population, if it's presented with the Palestine cause and what we are facing, they actually are more inclined to support our position. More importantly, I think, if you speak to people in a clear and unambiguous way about the conditions in some of the uh, Muslim states, they would be inclined to support. I think there most people are politicized to into silence. Uh, most people will actually would be opposing arms sales to United Arab Emirates. They will oppose arms sales to Saudi Arabia. They will oppose MBS and MBZ. They'll oppose these monarchies that deal with their own societies in a despotic way. They will oppose Sisi being fed with a, a, uh, an honor of uh, a French honor because he's basically becoming a part of the French political landscape relative to its policy in the Middle East. And I think what we need is to be confident of our advocacy for justice, for fairness, for basic freedom and dignity. And I do think those are uh, really are a trans-historical positions that are not diluted or weakened uh, by the momentary shift in political powers. And that's why I'm constantly advocating, no matter what are the arch of the momentary political landscape that we are confronting. I do always feel that we are on the strong grounds even though that sometimes it might appear that those who are what you call might be flying high because they have uh, acted in a smart aleck way, I think that's an impression rather than the reality. I do believe as a person of faith that God is just and God is justice. And therefore, 
under no circumstances, injustice has a reality. It only has a temporary celebration, but it has no reality. And I'm confident that's where we're heading, uh, both as a collective, as well as across uh, the globe. It's just, we need to do the work. Well, actually, thank you, uh, Dr. Baziani. This actually echoes what another Palestinian figure I interviewed in Le Breakdown and Les de Libre in French. He said that injustice is an unsustainable system. And at the end of the day, it ends up collapsing, whether we wait for it or we just witness it in our lifetime. Uh, Dr. Bazian, thank you so much for spending this thank time you. with us. Uh, I remind our listeners and viewers that you are a decolonial Islamic thinker, professor at the University of Berkeley, California, co-founder of the Zaytuna Islamic Law and Theology Institute uh, in, in California. Again, you can be read at the uh, Islamophobia Research Project multiple news outlets, Daily Sabah in Turkey. There's too much to mention. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. Thank you. <laughs> so thanks again, Dr. Bazian. So I will hopefully, hopefully I will have you again on a common platform with a, a Sahrawi activist and thinker to see kind of what kind of dialogue can be opened. Um, hopefully next year, the Islamophobia conference will take place in presence that COVID-19 sure. will be a thing of the past. Inshallah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Bazian. As for you, dear listeners and viewers, thanks again for spending this time with us. Um, you can find this podcast on all, you know, audio stream, audio streaming uh, platforms. If you think the breakdown deserves your support, please make a donation on cjl.ong. Whatever amount you give will help us, you know, make this podcast sustainable, pay, the, pay our fees, and of course, have a workable, um, you know, a professional team to work on production and post-production. This is it for today. Thanks again. Stay safe, wear a mask, social distancing, and of course, may we live long enough to see a free Palestine. Thanks again. Thanks.